Welcome to Bitcoin Tech Talk. My name is Jimmy Song, and you can always find this newsletter at jimmysong.substack.com to get it in your inbox every Monday at 9 a.m. Central Time. A review of the Fiat Standard Bitcoin Tech Talk issue number 268. Safety Namus just published the follow-up to his popular book on Bitcoin, The Fiat Standard. Having read the book, this is my attempt at giving you an overview so you can decide for yourself whether it's worth picking up. The book is split into three major parts, Fiat Money, Fiat Life, and Fiat Liquidator. The first part of the book is about the current system, Fiat Money. It goes through why we have the financial system that we have today. Safety continues in the tradition of Austrian economists by inter interpreting historical events in light of economic forces and motivations starting with the advent of central banking, the Bank of England. He explains how the Bank of England used its lending power to take value from the people who used its currency, particularly in the colonies. He's surprisingly sympathetic to why central banks centralized gold, which eventually led to fiat money. As he explains, gold saleability across space is made much easier through the use of debt instruments. I learned a lot about how controlling the monetary network became such a desirable prize for sovereigns and the struggle that ensued. This section also goes through the boom and bust cycles of credit expansion and contraction and puts them in con historical context. Safety then shows how the real levers of international power involve monetary dominance. This was a big light bulb moment for me as it showed clearly why countries try so hard to get their own currencies adopted by other countries. International politics makes so much more sense when thinking about economic control through the forcible spread of a fiat monetary network. A very useful distinction that I didn't fully understand until reading this section is the difference between money and credit. As Safetyne points out, the conflation of the two is precisely what makes fiat money work. Credit is a promise in the future that needs collection. Money is what exists now and can be traded. The credit and money conflation is what causes opportunity cost-free debt to become such a major part of economic life. Essentially, everyone that has credit available to them is incentivized to go into debt. This leads into the second part of the book, Fiat Life which is about the second and third order effects of fiat money, particularly around time preference. I'm sure critics will complain about his analysis of food, science, and energy, but he makes compelling arguments that these have been and continue to be corrupted by fiat money. As he shows, these industries are not free markets, and the economic distortions ultimately serve their fiat funders, not the markets themselves. You may not like his conclusions, but his reasoning is solid and will give you a lot of food for thought. The chapter on fiat states was especially enlightening for me. Safetyne explains here what international financial institutions do. These are organizations like the World Bank, IMF, and World Trade Organization, which Safetyne calls the misery industry. As he shows, international development is a way to enforce monetary dominance on third world countries. Safety shows how these international financial institutions hold back the development of underdeveloped countries, largely through monetary means to fund the bureaucratic class. 
The final part of the book is about, how, about Bitcoin and how it will fix many of these distorted markets. The section is remarkably positive because of the hope that it offers. For example, Safedean does not expect hyperinflation to be the end game for the major fiat currencies as Bitcoin takes over. He expects the distorted markets to slowly correct as a result of removing fiat influence. This section also lays out sharp reasoning about proof of work. Safedean argues that proof of work is an alternative to political and monetary dominance games, which involve expensive wars and violence. He also writes about the possibility of government attack and why Bitcoin will be able to resist it. As Safedean explains, we have been conditioned to think that government bans are effective, when historically they haven't been. I really enjoyed the clarity of his economic arguments as they put in words what I had thought before, but with better economic precedents and analogies. Perhaps my only complaint about the book is that it reads a bit like a collected group of blog posts. I found many sentences that sounded almost exactly like what I had read a few chapters earlier. This is perhaps to allow the reader to digest the chapter at a time. That's not necessarily a bad thing, as the book is definitely worth examining multiple times. Overall, I highly recommend this book, as it helps readers understand how the current monetary system works. The strategy of comparing fiat money's operation with Bitcoin's hugely and uh, with Bitcoin's hugely enlightens those readers who already know how Bitcoin works, and the historical examples are top notch. So I, I did finish the uh, fiat standard over the weekend, and it was uh, it was a really good read. I, I didn't expect to learn as much as I did. Uh, there there's certainly a lot about sort of like these. Uh, global monetary um, you know, organizations like the World Bank and the IMF and the WTO and all those and how they sort of like have manipulated themselves into being essentially the middleman for the Federal Reserve. So they, uh, they get funded by the Federal Reserve and basically do quote unquote development in these uh, third world countries, essentially sort of destroying a lot of these economies and uh, creating sort of a dependent bureaucratic class and so on. So that that's one thing that was hugely insightful. Lots of other things in there as well. Um, uh, that first whole section is about, you know, how the Bank of England, you know, came to be and how it, you know, took advantage of the colonies and exported inflation because they were colonies, right? Like they had monetary dominance over them. And that ends up being actually almost more important than, anything else uh, than like the resources and so on. Um, this this was a large part of uh, Great Britain's uh, or England's hugely successful reign as sort of like uh, the dominant world power. Uh, it, it was this ability to um, use the colonies in that way. And that continues to happen as, as safety and argues. It's, it's, uh, you know, the world is basically monetarily dominated by the U S everyone else is sort of like a vassal state to the U S. Uh, so really interesting, um, and surprisingly like positive about uh, fiat money, uh, more so than I expected. Um, and I think he admits this in the book so several times that, you know, he, uh, he thought it was this bane of evil, but he, he came to sympathize with it more as uh, the more he wrote the book and the more he studied it, because it does uh, like create this network and that saleability across space. And that that does have an important factor to it. 
Um, so highly recommend it. Um, you know, go go get the book. It's like nine bucks on Amazon for a Kindle and thirty five for a hardcover and so on. Uh, definitely worth reading. All right, so let's talk about Bitcoin. Ledger finally has support for PSBT. As part of the upgrade, they've also added Taproot support. The post is great for learning how they made engineering trade-offs given the very constrained environment that Ledgers operate in. For example, the RAM on their devices is less than 10,000 bytes. So reading an entire PSBT file into RAM is not an option. The wallet still remains stateless, so clients have to store descriptors and provide them to the wallet by registering them. Overall, the post should give developers a good idea of their architecture and strategy. So, um, you know, I, I did learn quite a bit about like how a ledger works and, you know, what, what sort of constraints these uh, hardware wallets generally have. Um, they do have a secure element and things like that, but there's RAM involved and they don't have that much RAM, right? Like you would think like a megabyte of RAM wouldn't be that expensive or whatever, but in a constrained environment where you want to be able to prove things and so on, um, you know, you don't necessarily have a large RAM and, you know, these devices have been sold already. So you have to sort of uh, figure out how to make it sort of backwards compatible and things like that. So very interesting post. Um, you know, they, they I've been waiting for them to support PSBT. It's great that they're also supporting Taproot. So um, just wish that they would open source their, uh, you know, firmware code and so on. Speaking of which, here is a handy chart for uh, of which wallet supports sending to BEC32M addresses, which are taproot. As before with SegWit, progress is incremental. A majority of wallets seem to be able to send to BEC32M addresses, but few are ready to receive to BEC32M or pay to taproot addresses. As I argued in last week's newsletter, the benefits to users in terms of realistic security threats are enormous, and I expect developers to implement them in the coming year. So... Uh, kind of sad that, uh, you know, it, it, it's, you know, they, a lot of these wallets have had a while to get ready, but they, they haven't. So we'll see when, when it actually comes out and so on. But, uh, but yeah, at least Ledger is starting to support it. I, I imagine a lot more wallet developers are looking at it right now and working on it as we speak. Richard Meyer shows how SigHash AnyPrevOut APO can be used to create covenants. The main idea from the slide deck is that you can put a signature in the tapleaf script, making it valid for any previous output in a taproot mastery. More signatures from that private key wouldn't be able wouldn't be available because it was generated using music two or some other process which requires coordination between multiple parties. As a result, only the outputs that the signature signed would be available. This is a clever way to do covenants with this single additional sig hash, though I'm sure uh, I'm not sure how it would fare against the many other proposals. So, um, sig hash any prev out is something that we've been uh, you know talking about as part of Lightning. That way, you can sort of uh, you know update channels without going on chain and things like that. Uh, but you can apparently also use it for covenants, and it's uh, it's a clever idea. You you uh, Create the signature for a particular set of outputs, and or you know, and that that's it. And th those are the only ways you can spend it because you sort of combine them earlier using music two or something like that, and the keys are separate. That way, you can't go and make more signatures. So the signature stays in the tap leaf, and then you substitute the pub key based on how you want to spend it, and that's that's the idea. Um, yeah, very clever. 
All right, Lightning. Kevin Rook predicts that creators getting paid will be the next big use case for Lightning Network. That's a big problem as the centralized platforms like Facebook, YouTube, and such are not only taking a large portion of the money that would be paid to the creators, but also often censors them for their political opinions. As Kevin correctly points out, this is an obvious fit since content creators are often really good at marketing and don't necessarily need these platforms to succeed. So um, Lightning Network and uh, and creators seem like a pretty good marriage, and I, I expect creators to uh, do that the more they get censored and the more arbitrariness a lot of these platforms uh, display and so on. I mean, you, you have, uh, you know, the really big uh, players in these markets uh, that I think can leave at any time and would bring a large audience with them. Uh, so it would be interesting to see if they do the math and see if uh, it makes sense for them to do and still continue to make a lot of money. Bastian Tieturier, I think B, B, uh, T-Bast on uh, GitHub, writes about how you can maximize privacy on Lightning. The post goes through channel openings, uh, Lightning network payments, and pathfinding, and shows at what steps different information is leaked. The post is an excellent compilation of the possible ways in which your information can leak. I hope Lightning Network software can help users understand what may or may not be leaking as they work on their clients. So um, a lot of people think Lightning, you know, you're, you're, you're doing everything privately. It's not necessarily the case. And he points out different places where your privacy leaks and so on. And um, this is to get your uh, privacy airtight. I, I, I think that it's worth uh, reading for that reason. Nick Farrell argues uh, for using Lightning as a non-KYC way to get Bitcoin. As he points out, so many of the possible ways in which you receive Bitcoin require KYC. These are largely custodial providers, which will take the Bitcoin on your behalf and convert them for you to your local currency. Taking Lightning using your own node allows you to receive non-KYC coins, which can be a boon for privacy. So... Um, you know, he, he's talking about sort of peer-to-peer -peer digital cash and how far along we are on that. Unfortunately, a lot of the ways in which you get Bitcoin require KYC, which, uh, which I, I don't like. I, I don't think he likes and so on. So, uh, you know, he, he's arguing for Lightning becoming a bigger part of that. LNSMS is a service to get around the ridiculous phone number verification rules. You can pay to receive a one-time SMS message using Lightning. So um, there, there are sort of like one-time SMS things and uh, you can receive, uh, you know, SMSs anonymously. Uh, they have like one-time use phone numbers and so on. So interesting idea. Uh, we'll, we'll see if it takes off. Economics, engineering, etc. cetera. Uh, Jan Mani has a complete analysis of proof of stake and how it cannot be a consensus mechanism. The post goes through the problem of decentralized consensus and how proof of work elegantly solves this problem by having an objectively costly metric, that of finding a proof of work hash. Proof of stake does not have an objectively costly metric and consensus disputes cannot be solved without some authority. In other words, Proof-of-stake is a centralized system. Amazing article that needs to be read by everyone who thinks they're being smart by talking about proof-of-stake. So, um, you know, proof-of-work solves uh, this very difficult problem of how do you objectively measure who, uh, you know, who gets to make the next block. Proof-of-stake does not solve that problem at all because 
sign, you can sign multiple things, and to figure out which one is canonical requires some sort of authority. In other words, it's centralized. Um, and that's what uh, Jan Mani is, uh, is talking about in that post. And the thing is, like, Vitaly Buter totally admits to this. He just uh, plays with words and, uh, you know, like, sort of hides this fact uh, under a mountain of proposals or whatever. The, the guy is a scammer and proof of stake is a scam. So uh, for those of you that uh, think it's uh, it's some magic pill to make make things better, it, it's not. It's a, it's a way to centralize uh, something, uh, it, it's, it's a centralized thing. That, that, that's it. Marty Bent draws attention to some miners who had their pools attacked via DNS pollution. This is not a normal attack, but it does make sense that something as centralized as DNS could be a possible failure point. To really make these tools more robust, they may have to move towards Tor hidden services and the like to get that level, extra level of robustness. Uh, so there was something called DNS pollution, which is essentially uh, you, you have a domain uh, which these pools run on. Um, and I guess in China, um, like F2 pool and some others uh, had their domains within China only get sort of uh, you know, uh, get poisoned. So, uh, you know, it, it led to some other place rather than their own pool and their uh, hash rates dropped precipitously. Um so uh, that that's uh, you know DNS is a centralized single point kind of so like what what you need to do is have Tor hidden services or alternate ways to get onto these pools, uh, which I hope they do. Robert Breedlove shows how inflation is despair in his Bitcoin is hope series. As he points out, inflation has the opposite effect of hope in that it destroys rather than creates. Breedlove argues that his that this regresses civilization. The framing is correct and is pitch perfect for the times we live in. More people than ever are feeling this malaise, and I suspect this will result in some huge political consequences in the next few years. So inflation is despair. Bitcoin is hope. That's the framing around this article. And it really does sort of like like drain you of all kinds of things. And if you've uh, read The World of Tomorrow, you, you can definitely feel that. Paul J. Miller has a thought-provoking article on premature innovation. The post goes over goes all over the place, including rants about unseen effects, El Salvador's legal tender laws, and fragility. But there's a lot of substance there. Essentially, he thinks that there are premature innovations that are fooling a lot of people into thinking that there's something amazing around the corner. It's a sobering reminder that El Salvador may not be the model that everyone copies and that some other method may need to come into play. So his idea is that Okay, we see the first thing and we sort of project out based on that. That's premature innovation. Um, but that uh, that's not necessarily how innovations work. Oftentimes, you know, there, there's like a start and stop and stuttering and stuff like that. And, um, you know, as he points out, you know, El Salvador is kind of authoritarian and, he, uh, and you know, uh, forcing legal tender laws and things like that is not necessarily uh, the path that we want every country to take and the path that many countries may not want to take. Uh, Tomer Strolight has a follow-up to his very popular post on the problem of Ethereum. In this follow-up, he again distinguishes the different classes of people on Ethereum and concludes that the London hard fork essentially screwed both the worker class, miners, and the user class so that the wealthy class could benefit instead of users paying miners with fees as before, though now those fees are just getting burned. 
As he points out, ETH is just as, if not more unfair than normal fiat currency. So Tomer is, uh, you know, continuing to show how uh, just sort of like this insider game that Ethereum is. It really is kind of like an MLM or something. Level is planning to make it possible to bank on Bitcoin. Full disclosure, I am an advisor to the company, but I've been pushing for them to go in this direction for a while now. They are aiming to make it possible for you to live on the Bitcoin standard while taking care of your yucky interface to fiat money. If there are as many people that want to live this way as I think, this should be a major hit. So, um, you know, basically, it's a it's a post by the CEO uh, and Chris Slaughter, who, uh, you know, talks about their master plan for Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, for their service and how it's going to support the Bitcoin ecosystem. Essentially, he wants it uh, to make it possible for people to live on a Bitcoin standard, automatically sort of converting uh, Bitcoin to dollars as needed and so on, but keeping your wealth in Bitcoin. Some quick hits. The Bitcoin developer Anthony Ronning explains why he left Twitter. Um, so pretty sobering, and he's like, you know, it's it's not really good for me. And you know, he 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 left Twitter, uh, but you know, I, I expect him to continue publishing. Good for him. Ethereum's blockchain is still smaller than Bitcoin's. It's just so horribly designed that running it requires far more resources. So this is uh, based on Bitmex's examination, Bitmex research, I think did. Um, and it's, uh, you know, basically their blockchain is still kind of smaller, but you just need to keep uh, an insane amount of state in, in order to know anything in the past and so on. Don't use your fingerprint as a security measure. This comes from Kraken. Um, you can copy fingerprints for any sort of device in like five minutes. Another week, another ETH smart contract suffers from ADSC. This is the constitutional DAO. It, it just is a big mess right now and uh when people they're trying to refund people but all their money is going into fees which essentially means it gets burned not a good situation events i am planning to be in london for the advancing bitcoin conference march 3rd and 4th but there is some possibility i won't be able to get into the uk i am also going to be at bitcoin 2022 in miami april 6th to 8th i'll be doing programming blockchain seminars in london before the advancing bitcoin seminar and uh, Miami before the Bitcoin 2022 seminar. Some podcasts. This week's Bitcoin Fixes This. I talked to Fred Thiel, CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings. We talked about his path to becoming CEO, how he tries always to add value, and how he prevents his companies from becoming ossified. So uh, go listen to that if you haven't. Uh, he's uh, a fountain of wisdom. Read through last week's newsletter, which you can find. Uh, I was on the Bitcoin Basics podcast to talk about Taproot. And here is, of course, the new book, Thank God for Bitcoin, which was published a year ago. I am working on another one. My other books are The Little Bitcoin Book and Thank God uh, and uh, Programming Bitcoin. Unchained Capital is the sponsor of this newsletter. I am an advisor and proud to be a part of a company that's enhancing security for Bitcoin holders. If you need multi-sig, Collaborative Custody, or Bitcoin Native Financial Services. Learn more at Unchained.com. Fiat, the Lenda S. This song is done.